Good morning again, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome, welcome. Well, ladies and gentlemen and boys and girls, by the way, I've got to include everybody. Two weeks ago, when I was last preaching from this platform, we were reading and studying about the crucifixion of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Last week, Pastor Emeritus Ron Parker preached a special message to honor Memorial Day, which, of course, is in memoriam to all the men and women who gave their lives in service to our nation. And thank you again, Pastor Parker. What did those people die for? They died for our freedom. Well, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ also gave his life for our freedom almost 2,000 years ago. More specifically, for our eternal freedom from sin and the, from freedom from the eternal punishment in hell that justice absolutely requires. Now let me ask all of you a very simple question. And I'm going to pause for a few seconds after asking this extremely important question, for all of you to think about it. I want, to th want you to think about your answer, because it is eternally, monumentally important. According to God's Word, the Bible, what is the Gospel? What is the Gospel, according to God's Word? What is the heart? of the gospel. Well, the care of the body of Jesus. Think about your answer as we continue. First, I want to begin reading. You do not have to read with me today. You can just follow along on the screen if you like. So I'm going to relieve you of that responsibility today. Not that you ever really had to, but Today I'm going to read, you can follow along. The Apostle Paul answers this eternal and monumentally important question in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And in the interest of brevity, brevity, we're going to read just verses 3 and 4 today. For I handed down to you as of first importance. What importance? First importance. Does that mean it's really important? Yeah, it's of first importance. What I also received, that Christ died. Christ died. Let me repeat that one more time. Christ died. Why? For our sins, according to the Scriptures. And that He was buried. He was buried. He was buried. I know, I'm repeating myself, maybe a little too much to be annoying, but the point is absolutely vital that you get it. And that he was raised on the third day, according to the Scriptures. That's 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4. We're going to get into this a little bit. Why is all this so important? Why am I pounding on this? Well, he says it right there, does he not? It is absolutely essential that you know that you completely understand and that you believe the core facts of the gospel message. That is, if you actually want to go to heaven. Have I got your attention? 
Let's get down to business, shall we? First verse of our passage today. Now then, since it was the day of preparation to prevent the bodies from remaining on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews requested of Pilate that their legs be broken and the bodies be taken away. Well, that's just the opening verse. But allow me to back up for just a minute. Jesus died and was buried. And the previous sermon I preached here was about Christ's sacrificial death upon the cross. The cross of Calvary, also known as Golgotha, the place of the skull. So why did he die on the cross? Well, the Ro Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. Leviticus 17.11 says that it is by the blood, by blood, the reason of life that makes atonement. Makes atonement. There is no remission of sin apart from the shedding of blood. Jesus, our Messiah and Savior, the sinless Lamb of God, had to die in our place because death came into the world through sin. He not only had to atone for our sin, he also had to conquer death and the grave for us. That's why he died. That's why he was buried. Are you with me so far? Can I hear an amen? amen. Okay, one more time with, with feeling. Amen. amen, all right. Good, I'm glad you're with me. So, as we continue today in John's Gospel, we will see how our Savior continued to fulfill prophecy in his death and burial. When Jesus spoke his final words before dying on that cruel cross, it is finished, he said. He was not just declaring that he had finished atoning for our sins, but was also fulfilling Bible prophecies. So again, we jump into this in a minute, but I want to review John chapter 19, verse 28 and verse 30. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished in order that the scripture would be fulfilled, said, I am thirsty thus initiating the fulfillment of Psalm 69, verse 21. In verse 30, it says, Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished, to die. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Jesus, by an act of his will, laid down his life. Then and there, on the cross, laid down his life. In John chapter 10, verses 17 and 18, John said, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it back. Got that? Voluntarily, willfully laid down his life so that I may take it back. Verse 18, No one has taken it. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it back. This commandment I have received from my Father. Jesus the Christ obeyed every single commandment without failure, without flaw, without hesitation. And in this, he was obeying a commandment from the Heavenly Father. John, verse, John chapter 1, verse 29, John, Bap, John the Baptist said of Jesus, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Amen, brother. 
Now let us now get into today's scripture. I jumped ahead of myself when I read that first verse. I'll, I'll read it again. Now then, since it was the day of preparation to prepare the bodies from remaining on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day. What high day was it? It was Passover, right? The Jews requested of Pilate that their legs be broken and their bodies be taken away. Well, if you know anything about crucifixion, they're hanging like this, and in order to breathe, they had to push up against the spikes in their feet in order to take a breath and exhale, and then they could rest down again, and they would have to keep pushing against these spikes to breathe. By breaking their legs, they were making it so that they couldn't do that, so they would die faster, okay? And it was the Jewish leadership that requested this. Why? Well, let's look at the next uh, slide. This is the law written in Deuteronomy chapter 21, verses 22 and 23, and I will read. Now if a person has committed a sin carrying a sentence of death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body is not to be left overnight on the tree, but you shall certainly bury him on the same day. For he who is hanged is cursed of God, so that you do not defile your land, which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. The Jewish leadership was absolutely focused on obeying the law. Somewhat ironic, don't you think, that they were absolutely rejecting the Lord and the lawgiver who was the author of that very law and who was fulfilling the law. Think about that. Think about that. They were controlling all of first century Judaism. And they were rejecting their Savior. So they, again, like I said, were making sure that he was dead in order to obey the law and avoid a curse on their land, according to the law. Strange enough, though, they were bringing a curse on themselves by, the way, by all of this shaken out. Verse 32, so the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and the other who was crucified with him. So why didn't they break the legs of Jesus? We'll get to that in a minute. But you know that the Roman soldiers here, this experienced execution squad, they had done this before. It's four soldiers called a quaternium. They are led by a centurion who normally leads a hundred men, hence the term centurion. Now, because the four of them were very experienced in this gruesome job, they knew death when they saw it. They knew it well. Verse 33, but after they came to Jesus, when they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Who's in control here? God is in control here. Okay? God is in absolute control here. Jesus was already dead. The Roman soldiers did not know this. They couldn't have known this. But they were testifying 
of Jesus' death. Now, why does all this come up? Well, there's a bunch of, bu- bunch of scoffers from back in the Apostle John's day. As well, they were called docetists. And there are scoffers now, and there will be more scoffers in the future who will do anything and everything. They will take every approach that they possibly can to attack the heart of the gospel, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This, the Lord provided us with a defense against such scoffers by all of the verifiable proofs in this text. Okay? So, they saw he was dead. He gave his life willingly and voluntarily in order to fulfill his father's commandment, number one, and to fulfill his mission, number two, and to fulfill Old Testament prophecy, number three. I want you to see the intricacy of how this is all working together and how God, the great weaver, is weaving all of this together so that all of these things would be accomplished. It is finished, Jesus said. It is finished. Verse 34. Yet one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately came out blood and water. Water and blood. Blood and water came out. Okay. They didn't break his legs. That was a fulfillment of prophecy. But here, blood and water came out. One thing you should know that the, the Roman foot soldiers had two weapons. They had a short sword and something called a pilum, P-I-L-U-M, or a lance or a spear. You can call it any name you like. It was made of light wood. It had an iron head and was about three and a half feet long. And almost certainly historians believe that it was with this, because Jesus was raised up on a cross, it was with this that the soldier jammed this spear into Jesus' chest, into his side, up into the pericardium which brought forth the water and into his heart which brought forth the blood. Now there are all kinds of people and doctors who have spoken about the separation of red corpuscles and uh, white parts of the blood cells, you know, all that kind of stuff. But the fact of the matter is, it doesn't have to be that complicated. Jesus was dead. Am I making my point here? Jesus was absolutely dead. If he hadn't been dead at that point, having a spear shoved into your pericardium and into your heart so that blood and water comes gushing out, that would have killed him right there on the spot. So if he wasn't already dead, which scripture says he was, he would have been dead from this. So say it with me, Jesus is dead, or he was dead, was dead. He's not anymore. I hate to, you know, be a spoiler there to let you know about that in case you didn't know. Jesus was absolutely dead. So, verse 35, and he who has seen has testified. Well, who's he who has seen? All through John's gospel, he never names himself. This is an act of humility. He does not name himself here, but it is absolutely, positively certain, as far as I am concerned, and most scholars of the Bible, I'm not a scholar, but as according to all the scholars that I've read, they're convinced that this is the Apostle John, the author of this gospel. And he says emphatically here, and he who has seen has testified, so he's an eyewitness, 
and his testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth. So that you also may, what? Believe. Doesn't he say that later on in this? The whole focus, he's written all of this. Why? So that you may know that Jesus is the Christ. Without question. So John the Apostle was an eyewitness. Now this being written, written down is like an affidavit. It's like a legal document of testimony. He is putting it down forever and ever and ever. From the first century onward into eternity, his testimony is that Jesus is dead. That Jesus was dead. The testimony of the Roman soldiers was that Jesus was dead. Okay? This is vitally important. Verse 36. For these things took place so that the Scripture would be fulfilled. It's quoting Old Testament Scripture here. Not a bone of him shall be broken. This verse looks back and corroborates verse 36, which we just read, as the fulfillment of Exodus 12:46, which says, Nor shall you break one of its bones. Now, Jesus isn't in it here, so it's not speaking specifically then of Jesus. It's speaking of the Passover lamb. The Passover lamb. This further identifies who Jesus is and what he's doing here. What was the purpose of the Passover lamb? It was what? It was to, it was to shed blood, to assuage, to put away the sins of the people. But it could only work temporarily. It was a symbol in the Old Testament, what they call a type, typology or typical prophecy. And so, it says, nor shall you break one of its bones. This is referring to the Passover lamb. Here's from Psalm 20, excuse me, 34, 20. He protects all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Old Testament prophecy being fulfilled. Continuing in verse 36. This may well allude to, as, uh, as it said in Psalm 34, 20, but also furthermore, and perhaps more fitting, is the fulfillment of Exodus 12, 46. Right here. It is to be eaten in a single house, and you are not to bring any of the meat outside of the house, nor are you to break any bone of it. The Passover lamb, this is law. This was the law. We don't think about this right now in our culture. We're not used to this thought. But you know that if you were caught breaking the bones of a Passover lamb, you could be executed? Do you know that? You think they take it seriously? Do you think everybody in that place who's reading these scriptures from John understands the importance of this and who this is pointing to? Verse 37, and again, another scripture says, they will look at him whom they pierced. They will look at him in whom they pierced. What is that quoting? That is quoting Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, which says, and I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and of pleading, so that they will look at me, capital M. Personal pronouns of deity are all capitalized in this translation, which is why I use it when I'm preaching and speaking and teaching from the Gospels. Okay? 
Look at me whom they have pierced, whom they pierced, and they will mourn for him, capital H, like one mourning for an only son. And they will weep bitterly over him, capital H, like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. Prophecy is being fulfilled in this passage. Verse 38. If Pilate had actually believed that Jesus was guilty of sedition, which would have made him an enemy of Roman authority, Pilate would not have released his body. But look at this. Now after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews, requested of Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate granted permission. If Pilate thought, like I said, Jesus was guilty of sedition and was an enemy of the Roman government, this would not have happened. How many times did Pilate pronounce Jesus innocent before being pressed to send him to the crucifixion because the Jewish leadership had him in the palm of their hand? They had blackmailed him to the nth degree. Six times. Six times he said, I find no guilt in this man. Clearly, Pilate, though I don't think he was a believer by any stretch, was convinced that Jesus was not guilty. Okay? So, <clears throat> Joseph, and we'll soon read in the next verse, Nicodemus, as we will see, are making a very unmistakable and public declaration of their belief in Jesus as the long-prophesied suffering servant. Or in other words, that Jesus is their Messiah. It's fulfilling Isaiah chapter 53, 9. In fact, all of Isaiah chapter 53 points to this, but specifically this is in verse 9. And his grave was assigned with wicked men. See, typically when they were crucified, when they were taken down from the cross, they were thrown on the garbage heap, like so much garbage. And that's what the plan was, if the Roman soldiers had taken him down, they would have thrown him on a garbage heap. But instead, it says, yet he was with a rich man in his death, because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. Okay? Mark indicates Joseph of Arimathea was a prominent member of the Sanhedrin in Mark 15.43. And Luke says he was a good and righteous man who would not consent to the plan that the Sanhedrin was enacting here. That's in Luke 23:51. So he was a good man, and he was a rich man. Verse 39, Nicodemus, who had first come to him by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred litres weight. A hundred litres. In some translations, you'll read it says it's about a hundred pounds. Well, a litre is a hundred I mean, a litre is a Roman pound. But in English pounds, if you do the conversion, is about 75 pounds. So some of your translations say 75, some say 100. That's the reason why. Okay? Now, you may remember Nicodemus from John chapter 3 when Jesus told him, you must be born again. You remember that? Say amen. amen. All right, I see some of you getting sleepy. Raise your hands and say Amen. <laughs> I get it. I understand. I'm in my 60s. I totally get it. All right? You must be born again. 
Or perhaps you remember him from John chapter 7, verses 50 through 53, when Nicodemus tried to defend Jesus to the Pharisees. And the Pharisees came against Nicodemus. You're not, you're not from Galilee too, are you? They said. Well, these two believing Jews, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, not only were likely excommunicated, we've talked about that before, how bad that is. Basically, you're cut off, essentially, from making a living. You're cut off from society. Everyone who is in the Jewish fellowship, for lack of a better term, the Jewish religion, is told to have nothing to do with you. You are public enemy. Why? Why? They were likely persecuted as a result of their actions on that day. And this, the very names were stricken from the Jewish religious records. Did you know that? Their names are here in the Gospels repeatedly. But the Jewish religious establishment, after the acts that these two secret believers up to that day were stricken from the record, you can look all through the Jewish record and you will not find those names. That's how much they hated these men for standing up. Learned men who knew the scriptures and studied the scriptures and went back through all of the Old Testament prophecies because they had been born again. And they looked at the scriptures searching for the truth as opposed to those who did not see the truth in scriptures. They only saw it as a way to wield power and to make money and have a position of prestige their focus was on this world and not on the next. Well, verse 40. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen wrappings with the spices, and as is the burial custom of the Jews. That's what they did. Why would they be burying Jesus if he wasn't dead? Now, I don't think that they fully understood at this point, obviously, that Jesus was soon going to rise. But here is further testimony that Jesus was dead. Extremely expensive quantity of expensive spices used for a burial is used to essentially wrap with linen around the body. You see, there was two different phases of burial. The body was buried as such and left to decay for about a year. When all the flesh and meat was gone, they would go back in and they would take the bones and they would put them into an ossuary, a little box that was specifically for the purpose of uh, restoring, I mean, or containing just the bones. That's what, what would ha how that would normally work out. Now, I want you to understand that these the Jewish sources are emphatic absolutely emphatic, that none of these actions are to be undertaken unless the person is clearly dead. It was actually a violation of Jewish law and custom to do this if, some, if they weren't dead. In fact, why would you? It's not even logical. So further testimony, say it with me, Jesus was dead. Okay? It's important. It is important. Verse 41. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden was a new tomb in which no one had been laid. 
This is to demonstrate that Jesus' body did not come into contact with corruption. This was probably fulfilling Psalm 16.10. More prophecy from the Old Testament. Almost every single detail in this passage is a fulfillment of prophecy. Isaiah had predicted in Isaiah 53 verse 9 that men would plan to bury the Messiah with the wicked, but that he would be with the rich in his death. We talked about that before. But now, a new tomb had been hewn out of the rock. Tomb that would have to belong to a wealthy person. Common folk couldn't afford to pay people to go in and hand-hewn. They didn't have heavy equipment in those days and jackhammers and all that kind of stuff. This was a time, uh, a, a very time-expensive, labor-intensive task that only a rich person could afford. So it had to belong to a rich person. Matthew explicitly notes in chapter 27, verse 60 of Matthew's Gospel that this was Joseph's own family tomb. Why is that important? Because it's fulfilling Isaiah chapter 53, verse 2. Okay? Burying another in one's own tomb reflects a very special and high degree of devotion. You want evidence of that? Look in 1 Kings chapter 13, verses 30 and 31, and in Genesis chapter 23. Okay, I've belabored the point, and I'm soon going to close. Warren Wearsby makes note that the Apostles' Creed states it without embellishment. He was crucified, dead, and buried. These three events are described in John chapter 19. These are momentous events, and we should understand not only from the historical point of view, but also from the doctrinal. What happened is important. Why it happened is also important. If you hope to go to heaven if you hope to go to heaven. The final verse. Therefore, because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus and other believers carried Jesus' body to this tomb. In so doing, not only were they making public profession of their faith, but they were not going to be allowed to participate in any more Passover stuff that was going on because they were unclean, because the law said they had touched a dead body. They were not allowed. You understand, this is a serious commitment, and it is a public commitment. The establishment that holds a whole lot of power over every day of their lives is now going to reject them forever ever and ever. But you know what? They were more concerned about forever and ever and ever with their Lord, Jesus Christ. Now I ask you, let me ask you this. Have you been a secret believer? Have you ever been a secret believer? I have. There have been times, not many recently, i got to be honest with you, but there have been times in the past when I didn't open my mouth, when people were saying bad things, incorrect things about the Bible, about my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and I did not stand up. I'm ashamed of those times. But you know what? 
as you would expect, since I'm the pastor and I do this for a living now, basically, you would expect that I would do that, but do you think that God expects you to make a public profession of your faith? Does he expect you to keep it secret? I don't think so. I just want you to think about that. Okay? I want to close with an illustration, or two, actually. One's on my phone. I'll get to that next. And it's the words of a song. And the name of that song... Oh, wouldn't you know it? Technology is betraying me. It is now playing Pandora in my hearing aids. <laughs> okay, maybe we're not going to do that one. <laughs> uh, let's try this again. Um, but I want to tell you a story. There is this story of uh, a man and his son on a warm summer day going down the road. And... The son is deathly allergic to bee stings. And as you might have guessed, the thing that happens, because they got the windows down, is a bee comes in the car. The little boy is frantic because he knows that he is deathly allergic to bee stings. The father, paying attention, reaches out and grabs the bee, manages to scoop it in his hand. And after holding the bee for a few seconds or a minute, he lets the bee go. And the son is frightened. The bee's going to sting me, Dad. The bee's going to sting me. And the father says, he can't hurt you anymore. Because bees, when they sting, they leave the stinger. Wherever they, whoever they stung. The father had the sting, the stinger in his hand. And he said, it's okay, son. He has no more stinger. Oh, death, where is thy sting? Jesus has removed the stinger of death for us if you are in Christ. That illustration is there for you. The words of the song rise again. Go ahead, drive the nails in my hands. Laugh at me where you stand. Oh, come on, Pandora, don't do this to me. <laughs> it wants to keep doing this. Let me see if I can get this done. Go ahead and say it isn't me. The day will come when you will see. Because I'll rise again. Ain't no power on earth can tie me down. Yes, I'll rise again. Death can't keep me in the ground. Go ahead and mock my name. My love for you is still the same. Go ahead and bury me. Very soon I will be free. Because I'll rise again. Ain't no power on earth can tie me down. Yes, I'll rise again. Death can't keep me in the ground. Go ahead and say I'm dead and gone, but you will see that you are wrong. Go ahead and try to hide the sun, capital S-O-N, but all will see that I am the one, because I'll come again. Ain't no power on earth can keep me back. Yes, I'll come again, come to take my people back. 
praise the name of Jesus. And I close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this message, for the hope, for the power, for the salvation brought to us by the death and burial of Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you. We are eternally grateful forever and ever. Amen. And I ask, Father, that if anyone here within the sound of my voice has not yet made this decision to follow the one who is absolutely sovereignly in control, who gave his very life to pay the debt for us, to take the wrath of eternal, the eternal righteous Father for us so that we could spend eternity with him. Father, I pray that you would cause that person or those people today to make the decision because today is the day of salvation. Today is the day. If you're ready to make that decision, I pray in the name of Jesus Christ that you come forward, that you tell us, that you tell Pastor Ron, you tell myself, tell Pastor Rick, whoever you need to, confess it and make it public. Don't be a secret believer, be a public believer. I pray this all in Jesus' holy name. Amen.